I heard a man tell a story recently about when he was getting on an airplane and, and, and flying with a family member, and that family member hadn't flown all that much before. And the family member sitting at the window noticed that they were flying through thick clouds. At times it was hard to even see the tip of the wing. And they, the, the inexperienced flyer expressed an anxious question looking out the window and asked, if I can't see through these clouds, how does the pilot be able to see up in front of us? And I, I think the, the uh, experienced flyer that was with them was, uh, resisted the temptation to say, oh, well, see, they've got this big brush out in front of the plane that moves the clouds out of the way so that the you know, pilot can see. No, obviously, the man was happy to tell them that the pilot has all sorts of instruments and technology and that is able to see where they are and, and what's ahead. And, you know, of course, the plane could fly itself for most of the flight. And isn't that what it's like to walk with God? We can't see very far ahead of us. Not very far ahead at all. But we trust what he sees. We trust what he can do. We trust what he has promised. And we follow him in and out of wherever and whatever he has for us. This morning, we look at a message that I've entitled, Lord over the impossible and the possible. He is Lord over what is impossible and he is Lord over what is possible. And, and by possible, I mean to reference those things that we fear because, you know, they're possible. They might happen. They might happen to, to more greater or lesser degrees of certainty. Today we're looking at Genesis 20, and we're also looking at the second part of Genesis 21. And the reason for that is because it's Abraham's interactions. Twice he interacts with a, with a person with the title of Abimelech. And I say a, a title because Abimelech is kind of like the title Caesar, Right? you got Caesar Augustus, Caesar Octavius. We really don't know if this is the same Abimelech. It's, it's like he's a king, but Abimelech is his title. Let's just remember what God has promised to Abraham. He's promised that his descendants will be made into a great nation. But some might say, but that's impossible. His wife is barren. He's been promised that his name will be great, but some might say that's impossible. He is a traveling nomad that has no connections in this new land. He left Ur, where he was probably quite well known. He had a, a lengthy family history there. He's been promised that those who bless him, God will bless, and those who curse him, God will curse. How is that possible? If Abraham ticks off the wrong ruler, he might be done. And of course, God would bring a blessing, he promised, to everyone through Abraham. As the book of Galatians tells us, that this, in this God was preaching the gospel beforehand to Abraham. Because he was referencing his coming Messiah through Abraham's descendants. But even after Abraham had been promised over and over, 
that God could do the impossible, all these impossible things. And he'd already seen God use him and his army of 300 fighting men to defend, to defeat an army of, of made up of the, the fighting men of five different kings. He'd seen God do the impossible. But here we find in, in chapter 20 that he's worried about what he and Sarah thought might be possible. What someone might do to them. Again, Abraham's afraid that the king of the land where he's living might supersede God's promises. Might just be mightier than the God who promised him all these things. So we pick up in verse 1 of chapter 20 where Abraham moves south and we read, From there Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah his wife, and we've seen this before, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Now, this would have been, in many ancient cultures, the law of the land, that the king has first right of refusal over all the single ladies. All right? So he could come and get any single woman and make her a part of his harem. We read in verse 3, But God came to Abimelech in a dream at, by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Apparently, Sarah still has it, right? She's probably in her 80s about this time, and she is still a looker. And we've seen this scene before, right? Uh, back with Pharaoh, when Abraham traveled to Egypt. But here, God is very direct with Abimelech, telling him, you are a dead man. This is not what you want to hear God say. It's like, do not move a muscle. We pick up back in verse 4. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother? In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Basically, if you had, you'd be a dead man. Now then return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. It is so sad to see here that, that the one who had all the promises and the assurances of God feels like he has to lie and manipulate in the situation. And the one who had no reason to walk in truth was kept honest and pure by God in the situation. Apparently, God is the one that keeps Abimelech from approaching Sarah. God must have been keeping Sarah from leaving Abraham all the time because apparently she is quite foxy. 
And Abraham's just got to trust that. Well, we pick up in verse 8. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? That's question number one. And how have I sinned against you? That you have brought me on me and my kingdom a great sin. You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, this is the third question he asked him, what did you see that you did this thing? I mean, here is Abraham like sitting here going, yeah, I, yeah. I mean, the guy that should, that Abraham should be teaching Abimelech, Abimelech is like drilling Abraham. What are you thinking? The situation brings up bringing glory to God, though embarrassment to Abraham. We read, Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place. And they will kill me because of my wife. This is what they thought was possible. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. That's before the law of Moses. This was acceptable at that time. Their step, that would be half half-siblings. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness that you must do me in every place in which we come. Say of me, he is my brother. And you're sitting there thinking, Abraham, have you not seen enough from God to let go of this gimmick since Egypt? You know, over 10 years earlier. So Abraham explains why he jeopardized Abimelech, and apparently all of his people too. And notice he also jeopardized God's plan. Isaac is supposed to be born to Sarah in the following year. And and if Abimelech had had relations with Sarah, and if a baby had happened, then we'd have a situation of there being no room in the inn, right, for Isaac. So why did Abraham jeopardize everything and everyone in this situation? Because of what he thought was possible. What might happen. And his sense of panic had him thinking like it, was, it wasn't just possible. It was going to happen if he didn't rely on this plan that he always had with Sarah. We pick up in verse 14. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. This is the king of the land telling this nomadic wanderer, Live wherever you want. It is a sign of your innocence. Oh, I'm sorry. To Sarah, he said, behold, I have given your brother, he says. You know, I think this is kind of tongue-in-cheek. All right, so I've given your supposed brother here a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone, you are vindicated. God flipped this situation around hugely. The most powerful man in the land is saying to Abraham, 
the wandering nomad without a city, settle wherever you want, wherever you want, wherever it pleases you. And once again, they actually walk away from the situation with more wealth and riches than they had before. But it did not come without Abraham eating some humble pie, right? I don't think it sat well with Sarah either. I imagine Abraham buying her a gift like a necklace or something and, and her saying, oh, well, did you buy that with the money that you got from last time you pimped me out? You know, I mean, there must have been some, oh, you know, continuing consequence here in their relationship. But lastly, we see God honors Abraham after Abimelech had been told to have Abraham pray for him, telling him, he is my representative to the world. He is a prophet. We read in verse 17, Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves, so that they bore children. Before the Lord had, clo- bef- uh, for the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Main idea I want to get across to you here this morning. Let God, who can handle the impossible, deal with what you are afraid is possible. Let the God who can handle the impossible deal with what you are afraid is possible. Do you realize the theme throughout God's word is trust me, trust my power, trust my love, trust my knowledge. We read in Job 42 verse 2, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Or in Isaiah 59 verse 1, behold the Lord's hand is not shortened, it that it cannot save, or his ear dull, that it cannot hear. Or in Jeremiah 32, verse 17, Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth. By your great power and by your outstretched arm, nothing is too hard for you. The first thing that I want to communicate from what we see in Abraham's experience with Sarah, stop trusting what can't take care of you. Stop trusting what can't take care of you. You know, imagine you see your neighbor in their yard and they're digging a hole. It's raining and they're digging a hole in their front yard and you go up and you're like, hey neighbor, what's going on? You going after the moles or something? And they're like, no, I am so thirsty and it's raining and I got to collect the water. Or, or, you know, this is my chance to get some water. You'd be like, hey, uh, why don't you come on over and get a drink from my faucet? Right? We're good here. You know, you, we'll, you, we'll, we'll take care of you here. Did you know that this is what God tells the, peop- the nation of Israel through Jeremiah? And these are principles that apply to all of God's people. When he says in Jeremiah 2, verse verse 12 through 13, Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. 
and hewn out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. He's painting the picture of kind of like your neighbor there, where, where there's flowing water available to this person, but instead they're digging a hole in the, in the ground, hoping that the rainwater can gather there, and that they, maybe if the water holds in that hole, they could drink some of that muddy water. And that is what we do, God is saying. When we turn from him who is able and willing and and knowledgeable to provide everything that he has promised, and we turn to something else and say, no, I need to get it from this. It's a better guarantee. That's actually what all cases of idolatry boil down to, is what we're told in Israel's experience in Jeremiah 2. Whatever object or relationship or practice that we think we need to survive or to thrive instead of trusting God is an idol that's like that hole in the ground. That we're turning to it instead of the flowing water that God gives us in relationship with him. And if you know Christ, he loves you too much to let that idol satisfy you or to protect you from what's possible. He loves you too much to let that thing satisfy you or to let that thing truly protect you. One of the biggest things that we try to trust in is money, right? Because it gets us the stuff we need, right? But over and over again, we see that God can care for us with pennies. Or he can make thousands of dollars evaporate in a fender bender. The Apostle Paul found the answer to relying on stuff when he talks about in Philippians 4, verses 12 through 13. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And when he's talking about by all things, he's talking about I can live with abundance and not let it own me, or I can live with very little and still be content. Idolatry is relying on something else to meet our needs in contradiction to trusting God. Let God who can handle the impossible deal with what you are afraid is possible. So stop trusting God in what can't take care of you and trust God for what he says he'll do. Think of all that God did to make sure Abraham didn't screw up God's plan. He came to Abimelech in a dream and basically said, don't move or you're dead. He stopped up the reproductive situation of the man's whole house. I'm not quite sure how that was involved in all of this, but it was. He makes it clear that Abraham is not to be messed with. We see this throughout the New Testament as well. After Mary asks the angel how it is possible that she could end up bearing the Son of God, being a virgin, how can a virgin have a child? God tells her in Luke 1.37, nothing will be impossible with God. 
In three Gospels, Jesus talks about how hard it is for someone to enter the kingdom of heaven. And it has to do with being rich again, right? That, that's what we tend to rely on because it gets us the stuff we need, right? He, he talks about how difficult it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And, and on, in all three of these accounts, and they're listed at the end of your notes there. There's, there's some passages there. In all three of those accounts, the people listening say, then who can be saved? And Jesus' response in all three of these situations is, with man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. This is a theme throughout the New Testament. In the men's Bible study, we studied Acts 12 yesterday morning. And this is such a blessing for all of us that are there every Saturday. i got to tell you that. But, but in Acts 12, Herod kills James the Apostle, and he imprisons Peter, and he's planning on killing Peter the next morning. This is evil King Herod. And the church starts to pray. And by the, by the time the chapter is over, Peter is released by an angel and is scot-free, and Her- King Herod is dead, eaten by worms. That's our God that turns the, the, the situation into does what it seems impossible for his glory. Over and over again, we see that God has it handled. In Romans 8, we're assured that God has a perfect plan at work for his children. We're told in Romans 8, 28 through 29, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he, Christ, might be the firstborn among many brothers. The only question comes down to whether or not you want to be conformed to the image of Jesus. Because that's the good that he is working in your life if you know Christ as your Savior. 1 Corinthians assures us that God can see through, see us through any temptation that we face. We're told in 1 Corinthians 10.13, no temptation has overtaken you that, uh, that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So the only question comes down to whether or not we want to be free from the sin that is tempting us. Let the God who can handle the impossible deal with what you are afraid is possible. Do you know that God has a way of taking his people through the wilderness. This is another theme in the scriptures. Jesus went into the wilderness in preparation for the beginning of his three years of ministry. The nation of Israel are redeemed out of Egypt and taken where? Into the wilderness. Taught to rely on God. Abraham leaves Ur, as we've seen, and is promised a land and descendants, but lives in a tent for the rest of his life. We learned from Hebrews why it did not matter. Hebrews 11, verse 10, uh, 8 through 10 tells us, By faith Abraham opened 
I'm sorry, by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs of the same promise. But they still lived in tents. And we're told in verse 10, For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Living in the wilderness makes a lot of things possible. Dying of thirst. Dying of hunger. Dying of exposure. God has a way of putting his children into places where it would be very easy to sit and say, but this is possible, and this is possible, and this is possible. Being attacked with no defense. Being killed because your wife's a cougar. That's what Abraham dealt with. Like Abraham, learn to let God, who can handle the impossible, deal with what you are afraid is possible. This brings us to Abraham's next interaction with the man of the title Abimelech. We, we don't really know if he's the same Abimelech, but um, let's just assume he is. There we go. There is some time that has passed, as we'll see next week. The beginning of chapter 21, Isaac is born. So this takes place after the birth of Isaac. We really don't know how much time has passed. But we pick up in chapter 21 at verse 22. And I want to challenge you from this. Let every challenge come down to trusting God. Because that's what we see happen here. We read, And at that time Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now therefore swear to me here by God, that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity. But as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the, and with the land that you, where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. I mean, this is pretty amazing. Abimelech is not only convinced that God is blessing Abraham, he's also convinced God is going to continue blessing Abraham. He's like, be good to me, be good to my kids, be good to my land, be good to my people, please. The descendants after me, remember them. Abimelech has cities, he's got a kingdom, he is a king. He's got an army with a commander that he brings along with him. Abraham's vulnerable. He is flapping in the wind like his tent flaps. But clearly, all Abraham might have feared was possible was handled by the God of the impossible. We pick up in verse 25. When Abraham, uh, when Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abraham's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me. And I have not heard of it until today. Now, there's some question about what's going on here. It's very possible that Abraham could have brought this issue up to Abimelech. And Abimelech's response is kind of like, hey, 
Just tell me these things, and I'll take care of it. But Abraham, it's very possible that he's still kind of living in this fear of, I'll deal with the guys that are messing with the well, but I don't necessarily want to bring this issue to Abimelech. But he finally does bring it up. And it's possible here that Abraham is the one kind of at fault because he is the one that supplies the animals at this point for this covenant that they're going to make. So we read, so Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two of them made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewe lambs apart of the flock apart. And And Abimelech said to Abraham, what is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? He said, these seven ewe lambs you take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore, that place was called Beersheba, because there both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. And Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. So this covenant, as we've seen, would have involved sacrificing animals. It's different than a contract. A contract is between two people. And those two people were basically saying, if you do your part, I'll do my part. This is a covenant, similar to what we see in the covenant of marriage as it's intended to be. It's not just between two people, it's between three entities. It's between the two people and God. And in a covenant of this nature, similar to the covenant of of marriage, it is saying, even if you do not do your part... I will do my part because I have not just covenanted with you. I have covenanted with God. Abraham's really bringing the situation to God. And he is bringing Abimelech to God and saying, okay, so you make this deal with God and I'll make this deal with God and we'll also make this deal with each other. We read in verse 33, Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba. This probably would have been kind of like a marker from that point forward. And called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. We can see three truths in this event. One, we can see God was trustworthy to keep his promises to Abraham. Right? I mean... Abimelech shows up with the commander of his army. And in these sort of situations of this mighty king with his mighty commander showing up to this nomadic wanderer, we would expect him to kind of say something like, hey, get off my land. Go somewhere else. Right? No, instead he shows up and he says, God is with you in all that you do. Basically, you could add to that because there is no reason why you should be as blessed as you are. There is no reason why you should have the influence that you have. We also see that Abraham left it to God to hold Abimelech to Abimelech's promises. In the two of them making this covenant, Abraham recognized God in the situation and trusted God to deal with Abimelech from that point forward. And we see that Abraham saw God as worthy to be trusted for his family's future. 
There he called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. You know, every morning some guy goes jogging by my house. And he stops at the corner of Durham and Hughes and starts walking from that point. And it just happened one morning before it got cold because I don't jog in the cold. Uh, just happened that uh, one morning I was starting out there and, and I start walking at that corner and, and I would start picking up uh, when I get to the next corner. And so we got the chance to talk a little bit and I, would, and I mentioned to him, I said, I notice you are out here rain or shine, hot or cold, jogging. You know what his response was? He says, well, I figure, and, and he's probably pushing 70. He said, I figure a body at rest tends to stay at rest and a body at motion tends to stay in motion. He's referencing here uh, one of Newton's laws of physics. And so his lifestyle of jogging was based on that law. He, he understood that law, and he was going to live by it. He decided, if I'm going to stay in motion, you know, in the future, I better stay in motion now. God works by a simple law, as we've seen pop up over and over again here in this message. He is trustworthy. And he wants to be trusted. He is trustworthy and he wants to be trusted. He's glorified when we trust him. He has a way of sticking us in situations where we need to trust him. And it brings him glory when we do. One of the most common passages that teaches us is Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. If you know Christ is your Savior, you know that God is trustworthy. And now this is because, uh, you, you know this because you've experienced him bringing you, in the miracle of bringing you from spiritual death to spiritual life. And like Abraham made a covenant, and handed that worry over to God. You know God's trustworthy because he made a covenant through the blood of Christ when he sacrificed his son. And my beautiful grandson tells me it's time to close. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father God, your blessings never end. How sad it is when we think of times that we cut ourselves short from seeing them, when we cut ourselves short from seeing you show up, from seeing you do what we thought was impossible, when we shy away from a situation because of what we're afraid is possible. Lord, make us a people that trust you. Make us a people that others are able to see and glorify you because it is just so apparent. God is blessing this person. We're not asking for material gain. We're not asking for safety and security. We're asking you to have your glory in us. 
We're asking you to, to glorify yourselves and us, your, your meager, humble servants. And Father, we ask this because we know that's where joy is found. That's where life is found. That's where we get to partake of, of the innumerable pleasures that are in your right hand. So Lord, give us faith, give us grit to trust you. Lord, I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.